Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, in James chapter 5, we're coming to the conclusion of James. And when we finish this, I want to begin a series on the life of David. And years ago, uh, my friend Michael Rydelnik, who is now the chair, I guess he has the chair of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. I'll never forget, years ago, I never heard any of his messages on this, but we were talking And he was telling me he was going to be doing a series on the life of David. And he entitled it, The Making of a Mensch. And in Yiddish, a mensch is a big shot, you know. So I always thought that's a great title, isn't it? The Making of a Mensch. We would say the making of a man of God. But I kind of like the making of a mensch, you know. So we're going to go through the life of David, some of the high points, and see how God went about taking this shepherd boy and transforming him into a great man of God uh, who is a man after God's own heart. So we'll take a look at that. So we're coming to the end of James. We'll probably take another couple of weeks before we, uh, we finish up. But I want to look at this section in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. This is such a beautiful passage. It's so well constructed and it's very clear. Let me share it with you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. This passage is so so beautiful and so interesting. I want to just point out a couple of things that you see in this passage over and over again. For example, look at his use of the word brothers. I think in these verses it appears four or five times. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, uh, brothers. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, Brothers, Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers. 
Uh, and, he, and he goes on, look at verse 12, but above all my brothers, he's speaking to believers and he considers them as part of his family. These are the brethren. And so the issue, the needs that are here are needs that the believers have, not just those outside the place of faith, not only outside the family of God. But I love how Yaakov, James, just endears himself to his readers. He has some hard things to say. But as he says those difficult things, he's saying them to family members, and he says them with a great sense of compassion and grace and caring. And so over and over, he addresses them as my brothers. Look at this reference to the patience issue. This is what this passage is on. It's about patience. And so uh, six times, he makes reference to patience. If you look at verse 7, he uses two different words. In verse 7, 8, and 10, four times he uses one Greek word. And then later in verse, uh, in verse 11, he uses two other words. So look at verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. In verse 7, and he t- calls our attention to the farmer. And he says, so be pa- who's being patient. About it until it receives the early and the latter, the latter rains. He, he, in verse 10, twice he says, And as example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And then in verse, uh, in verse 11, twice he uses a different Greek word in which he says, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Some translations might say patience here as well. And then you see again, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job or the patience of Job. So this is a passage written to believers in a sensitive manner. This is a passage about patience and steadfastness. And so we live in a day and age, we live in a culture, no doubt, where patience is not well sought after or desired. In the ancient world, Patience was considered a very high premium. A person in the ancient world who was thought of as being patient was a person who was thoughtful, who was reflective, who took time to just simply think about things and not merely be moved to act or to act too hastily. When we think of an impatient person, we generally think of a reckless person. You know, in baseball, and I've always been a big fan of baseball, go Sox, my Red Sox, but always been a big fan of baseball. I can remember even as in Little League or in later years when I played or when I coached, the same thing said over and over again, go on up to the plate, be patient, wait for your pitch, don't swing at every pitch, just wait. And, be, and relax and wait for that pitch that you can really uh, swing at and send a long way. We're impatient about a lot of things. The other day, I was driving up Woodlake Avenue going on my way home, and I was back at the intersection of Woodlake and Roscoe. It has to be, it has to be one of the slowest lights on the planet. I mean, I've never experienced anything so frustrating as when I came up to that light and I'm just sitting there, you know. And it's not as if this is a busy intersection in the valley and I'm just sitting 
And, I'm, and then I vowed. I wasn't going to move because I knew if I moved, if I made a right turn, if I, you know, sort of went down Roscoe, made a U-turn, then it would change. You know, I knew that was going to happen. So I just said, I'm going to wait this one out. But from then on, I never go through that intersection. I always make the left turn before the right, go up another side street, and then cross at another place. And the other day, I was driving home, and there was a car in front of me. And I decided, you know, I'm going to go straight. So I went straight, and I'm behind the car, and they're waiting at the light. I'm telling you, it's a long, long light. And the person in the car starts looking at me in the rearview mirror. And she's, <laughs> she's, she's raising her hands like this, looking at me. I don't know, you know. And then she rolls the window down. She's going, come on, you know. I'm telling you, it's a long way. And then she made the right turn. And I, and I thought to myself, bad move. You know it's going to turn when it, she makes the right turn. Well, it didn't. And I thought, oh, my goodness. She's got it. So she makes the right. I'm watching. She makes a left. U-turns, comes out. And right when she gets to the light, turns red. My thing turned green. Was able to go across. Why do I even tell you that story? Because in our culture, we don't value patience. I mean, think about this. Uh, years ago, when I was first learning how to sail, I read uh, the book, Two Years Before the Mast, by a fellow by the name of Richard Dana. It was written, I think, in the 18th century. I think it was in the early 1700s. And he was a student at Harvard College, now Harvard University. And he was losing his vision. And in those days, and to some degree they were right, that one of the treatments that they gave to individuals who began to lose their vision, they'd say, go out to sea. Because once you get out into the ocean, you know, there's no impediments to your vision. And so the muscles in your eyes work differently, you know. And so they thought one of the ways to help preserve your vision was, you know, you, you go out, you serve on a ship, you come back, and hopefully your vision has, you know, been strengthened so that you might not need glasses sooner than later. Well, his book, Two Years Before the Mast, you know, in that day and age, if you were a worker on one of these boats, a whaler, or if you were getting pelts or whatever you might have been, uh, a merchant ship of sorts, and you're collecting all of these things, um, you were never permitted to stand on the deck behind the mast. You can only stay before the mast. The captain and officers were behind the mast, and the workers on the ship, they had to stay before the mast. So for two years, he served on this ship, and he sailed out of Massachusetts, down South America, around Cape Horn, one of the most treacherous waters in the world, and then came up the, uh, the coast, came up, you know, South America, and then up um, the west coast of California, Dana Point, is named after Richard Dana because he traveled with this ship collecting all kinds of pelts and things. And when I first started reading that book, I thought two years he would set sail and he wouldn't be back for two years. You know, when my friend and I went on a sailing trip and we never got off our boat for 21 days, that seemed like a long time. But two years you would just sail and get back. You know, to cross the Atlantic in those days took months and months. Today, we just get on a plane, and we're flying in a few hours, and we complain, you know, from the East Coast, hey, it's six hours to Europe, or whatever the time frame might be. We are just an impatient 
society. How many of us, you know, when we go to stores, we see the escalators. People are walking up them, running up them, hopping up them. And you say, why? I, I got to get to where I'm going, you know? I mean, it's just, it, things are just too slow. But patience in the Scripture is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. And patience is a challenging thing to acquire because I don't think it's possible to ever gain patience without some form of suffering and frustration. I mean, how do you acquire patience? How do we acquire this fruit of the Spirit? It is through suffering. It is through trials. It is through frustrations of one kind or another. And now here, the first Greek word, that is used four times in this section, translated patience, is the word macrothumia. Macro, we get the word like great, large from. And thumas is the word for anger. So one that is long angered is one, maybe that's not quite said properly, but one who it takes a long time to get angry is patient. If you are short-angered or short-fused, The idea is you lack patience. So patience is sort of the ability to sustain frustrations over a lengthy period of time. And so James reminds us, reminds the readers, look, we need to be patient. And we need to be patient really with two areas in our lives. One is other people and the other are with circumstances. So we oftentimes get frustrated with others, and we become impatient with others. James must be thinking of this because look what he says in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. So why do we grumble against one another? Because we're impatient with one another. You should be holier than that. You should be wiser than that. You should be more sensitive than that. You should be more compassionate. We're expecting more from someone, and therefore we get frustrated by them, and we become impatient with them. That's why he says it talks about grumbling. The word there, interestingly enough, is the word to moan, to sigh. And so here it's like an external sighing, moaning, complaining. That's what he's talking about. He says we need to develop a sense of patience. Now, when patience is seen with regard to individuals, how do we respond? We would respond with forgiveness and we would respond with grace. And when we don't respond that way, then what happens is we become bitter, we become angry, and we become short-fused and intolerant. And the result is that impacts who we are as individuals. We then detach ourselves from others. We become cynical about life. And listen, the reason I can speak so well on this is because I, I have been able to sort of, sort of observe myself and reflect on moments when I have been frustrated with others. And when I'm frustrated with others, the last thing in the world I want to do is to be gracious with them. I'm frustrated. I'm impatient. This should be different. And so what do we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves talking to ourselves in ways that bring ourselves down. We start saying, if this person really knew what that meant to me, they wouldn't have done this. But if we address individuals that frustrate us with a 
patient spirit and heart, where we're forgiving and we're gracious, then we will find ourselves saying, not why is this person like this, but we will be saying, Lord, help me to do what you would have me to do, to forgive and to be gracious. And now spiritual realities begin to surface and the fruit of the Spirit begins to make itself known. It really comes down to choice. I dare say sometimes impatience is a whole lot more fun and fulfilling in that respect. But in, the re- in reality, it's most destructive. And when we deal with circumstances that come into our lives, again, the challenge is to macrothumia, to be long, or I should say long-tempered about this, not to be short-fused about it. And when we do so as unto the Lord, what happens is we learn trust, because we have to trust God that he is the one who's sovereign, he's in control, the circumstances I'm engaged in are not by chance, they're not by happenstance, they are part of God's purpose and program for me. And therefore, I can learn to trust him in this program and develop courage like I've never had before. When we face circumstances with patience as unto the Lord, we can experience a sense of trust because we find, as we all have, as we look at our lives, somehow we've come through the other side. Somehow, we've all gone through circumstances that uh, have been of a detrimental sense to us, and yet here we all are, and we move through those circles of challenge, frustration. And what have we learned? Hopefully, we've learned that we really can trust God, and hopefully, we've become more courageous in the face of challenging moments. So Yaakov wants us to be a patient people. He wants us to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Now remember, he's writing to Jewish believers. And he's writing to Jewish believers in anticipation of a judgment that will befall his people because of their rejection of the Jewish people, uh, the rejection of the Jewish Messiah. And so he is the pastor of this congregation of Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are experiencing tremendous amount of persecution and suffering. And he's telling them, despite the suffering, despite the persecution... To have patience, trust God, be courageous. Don't get frustrated with one another. You need one another. you got to come together with one another. You need to be one another, uh, with one another. And as such, he says, then we ought not to be grumbling and complaining, moaning and sighing about our struggles with each other, but rather be forgiving and gracious. So he gives us an example He says, consider the farmer who tills the land, farms the land, plants whatever seed he needs to plant. And he says, he does this without the sense that there will be a harvest to come. He doesn't know what the conditions, whether conditions will be. Will he get the former, as James makes reference to it, will he get the former and latter rains? This is certainly written to Jewish people in Israel, or at least he has Israel in mind. Because in Israel, the rainy season begins around October, and it lasts all the way till March and April. And so the former rains are rains that would come, if God is merciful and God is gracious, they're rains that would fall in October, November. 
And if God is particularly gracious and particularly blessing his people, they'll also get the latter rains, which will come in March and April. In between are, are, is its rainy season, those winter months, and they would have maybe their normal amount of rainfall. If they can get the former and latter rains, they could have three, four times the crops they might, they might not otherwise be able to harvest. And so Yaakov tells us, look, just like the farmer who doesn't have a guarantee that those former and latter rains, early and late rains will come. Nevertheless, he goes about his task of farming the land and preparing for those rains, trusting and being courageous that his work and his efforts will pay off. Now, he tells us this. He says, therefore, you also be patient. And here's the thing he says. How do we... Develop patience. How does it occur? Look what he says. Establish your hearts. The way to patience, really, is by reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness to us. That's why what he goes on to tell us is, number one, he says, examine uh, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, like the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, the word steadfast here is different than the words that he's used in the previous verses for patience. Here it's a word that he has introduced to us early in his letter. It's the letter, it's the word hupa mene, which means to hyper stand. We've made reference to this time and time again. Hupa is the, where we get the phrase hyper from, like hyperactivity. And the other word means to stand, to work hard at standing. To be actively engaged in standing. To hyperly stand strong. It's a word that's military in nature. It's like an officer who issues the command to his soldiers. You've got to keep this line and you cannot let it go at any cost. The enemy cannot get behind you. You are to stay here, stay put to the last man. Now, if any of you have ever read or gotten into the Civil War, there was a period of time where that was like my life. And I was just so enamored with reading about the Civil War and spent years just devouring one book after the other. I I even at one point had, for the most part, the Time Life series on the Civil War, looking at the maps and living in Maryland, we used to take trips to all the Civil War sites, Gettysburg and Antietam and Harper's Ferry and Fredericksburg and Richmond and all of those places. And for me, it was just so exciting, you know. For anyone that came with me, unless they were into it, it was another battlefield, you know. It's just another place. It's another place. Woods. It's woods. You know, it's a stream. It's a river. But for me, it's like I just would stand there, you know, and I'd look out and I'd try to imagine these men that had, were putting their lives on the line under the kinds of conditions at the Battle of Antietam, which was a battle that raged in September 17, 1863 in Maryland. It was a battle that one 24-hour period, more American lives were lost than at any other one-day battle in the history of the United States warfare. Something like 25,000 men were slaughtered in that one 12-hour period. Mary would always say, how can you read such things? That's gruesome, you know. Well, it is in, many, in one sense. It's also very heroic in another sense. 
And the Confederates, of course, were greatly outnumbered, something like three or four to one. And McClellan, who was the uh, commander of the Union troops, he had the terrain at his fingertips, he had the troops, but McClellan was a kind of man that loved his army as an army, not as a fighting machine. He loved to see them march. He loved to see them in their uniforms. He didn't want them to get dirty, let alone any of them to die. So he was always very reluctant to send his men into battle, hoping to win battles with the the limited resources rather than we've got to do whatever we can to win the battle. Now, you might say that is uh, admirable on his part, but you know the war could have ended very quickly if he had not adapted that philosophy. And as a result, over 600,000 American soldiers, both sides, highest casualties in all of American wars put together up until I think it was Vietnam or World War II, would never have been lost. And our nation would have been in a very different place. But as it was, at this particular battle, McClellan sent his troops section, 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 rather than just try to overrun the Confederates. And so what the Confederates were able to do was to move their troops from one place to the other to the other and to withstand each and every attack until finally, at the end of the battle, there was this bridge called Burnside's Bridge. And Lee put the remaining forces he had and he gave them the order, you are not to move from this spot. You cannot allow the enemy to come behind you. He issued the word, not exactly this, but the word that James used, hypermeno. You hyperstand here. You stay right here. You stay put. And those soldiers stayed put. They held the attack, and then they began to falter. And right at the point where they're about to crumble, Stonewall Jackson, with his troops from Harper's Ferry, made it onto the battlefield with their cannons and their artillery, and they were able to hold off the troops. When Yaakov says in this passage, consider the prophets who remain steadfast, that's what he's talking about. He's using this military term that says we will not budge. So what were these prophets like? Isaiah was told he was going to go to a people who would not listen to him. But Isaiah would not budge and continue to proclaim the truth of God's word, whether his people listened or not. Ezekiel was sent out, and he was told, you are to preach this message whether they listen or whether they uh, don't listen. But you are responsible to hold your ground and to hold on to this truth and to present it as I lead you to, without any regard how they respond, you are responsible to stand your ground. When God called Abraham, he said, Abraham, you are to leave your family, your country, your language, your culture, your traditions, and you're to go to a land I will show you. And Abraham stood his ground and did what God had told him to do. He was not a perfect man. None of these individuals are. But they were ones who hypermenoed. They stood their ground and they shared that good news. And they remained a faithful representative of the God who called them. You could look at any of the prophets. Look at a man like Jacob, who though running from his brother and then leaving Laban, he stood his ground, wrestled with the angel all night and had his name changed from Yaakov to Israel. 
and became the father of the Jewish people, as it were. For now we are called Israel, and his name was so changed to remind us of that. You can look at any of them. Think of a man like David who stood before Goliath, didn't just stand before him, but ran at him, the text says. With a sling in his hand, he runs towards this giant of a man who's got a shield, he's got a sword, he's got a spear, he's got all kinds of armor upon him. And none in Israel, not even Saul, who stood a head taller than any other man in Israel, would face that giant. And yet, David was willing to take to the field and stand steadfast, running at the giant, trusting God, being courageous. And so Yaakov is saying, we too need to exhibit this kind of quality of life if we're going to experience the fruit of the Spirit, patience, and be one that can have a short fuse as well as a long-standing before the challenges we face. He draws our attention to Job. And he talks about Job as a steadfast individual. No one suffered more, I can imagine, than Yeshua himself. No one suffered more than Job. And no one, was, uh, no one may very well have been more righteous than Job. It is God who says of Job... To the evil one, have you seen my servant Job? He's the most righteous man in all the earth. Now, Job was not sinless. Yeshua certainly was. He was the ultimately most righteous man ever, for he never sinned. But God says of Job, he is the most righteous man in all the earth. And says to the evil one, if you take everything from him, He will remain faithful, steadfast, in Yaakov's words. He will hypermeno. He will stand strong in the face of the challenges. And what challenges did Job face? He lost his wife. He lost his family. He lost his home. He lost his job. And he lost his health. He lost everything imaginable a person could lose with the exception of losing his life. And Yaakov tells us, we are to look at how he withstood the challenges of his life, and we too are to stand strong in the face of them. Now, you might say, I might say, patience is not such a critical thing. But this is interesting. Look at what Yaakov says in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is serious business. Impatience with one another, impatience with God when we go through circumstances is serious business because the Lord is standing to judge us. He will not judge us with regard to salvation, but he will judge us with regard to rewards that are yet to be experienced. He may judge us in this life and necessitate that we go through some disciplinary moments so as to bring out what he wants to bring out in us, namely the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is patience. So this is serious matter because Yaakov attaches the idea of impatience to the judgment of God. So I think there are two things that this passage tells us we can do so as to develop patience. 
He tells us, establish your hearts. So that means we have to talk to ourselves. That's what it means to establish your heart. It means remind yourself of things. This is why the scripture is so overly focused on remembering. The festivals of Leviticus chapter 23 are to remember the things God has done in Israel's history to deliver Israel to the place where God would want them to get to. That's why Yeshua tells us, do this in remembrance of me. We're always to be reminded of the things God has done in order to bring about his most perfect will and to bring deliverance to his people. We have to talk to ourselves. But the things we have to tell ourselves are the things God has done to champion himself and to deliver his people. Too often what we tell ourselves is we're unhappy. We don't like this. This is disappointing. Why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. This isn't right. So what are we telling ourselves? We're telling ourselves the very things God is not doing to us. What we need to be telling ourselves is, isn't God gracious? Isn't God faithful? Isn't God bringing us through? Hasn't God promised us to do this and that? We need to remind ourselves repeatedly because we are forgetful people. And remember, our hearts are sinfully wicked. Who could know it? Our hearts are not going to help us out in the matter. We have to take control of our hearts. If our hearts are left to themselves, they will lead us down the wrong path. As a sailor, that's what our boats are like. I remember when I was first learning to sail, the fellow who was telling me to sail is, now something you need to always remember. There's certain things you remember. One hand for you, one hand for the boat. Wherever you go, hand on the boat. And one hand for you, whatever you got to do, but the other hand always on the boat. That way, there's less chance you'll fall overboard. So one hand for you, one hand for the boat. But one other thing that we were always taught, if you let the boat to itself, it will do whatever you don't want it to do. Remember, you have to control the boat. So if you take your hands off the tiller or you don't have the sails set quite right, if you're not paying attention to your boat, your boat won't just do what it wants to do. It will do what you don't want it to do. And you'll find yourself in trouble. Our hearts are like that. You take your hand off your heart. You take your mind away from your heart. Your heart will lead you astray. Your heart will tell you things that are not true. Your heart will repeat to you the very things that are the things God is not doing. So he tells us, establish your heart. And he tells us how to establish it. First, he tells us, remember those who have suffered before us. God has brought them through. And the premier sufferer of sufferers is the Messiah of Israel. Remember Yeshua, what he went through, what he endured, and how God blessed him and rewarded him. Isaiah 53 tells us this. He will see of his seed, he will prolong his days. Even though he would be the one who would bear our sin and carry our sorrows, even though he would be the one whose hands and feet would be pierced, according to Psalm 22, he would also be the one who would inherit a great inheritance. He would be greatly blessed. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us this over and over again. He went to the place of his execution with the joy set before him because he knew of what God had promised him in the end. So we're to remember the past. We're to remember the prophets. We're to remember Job and his suffering. And we're to remember the promised one of Israel who suffered for us, who did not sin but carried our sin, and in his suffering provided us with life everlasting. We need to remember Messiah and never forget what he went through. 
But not only does he tell us to remember the past, he tells us to look to the future. Because three times in this section, interestingly enough, he makes reference to the coming of the Lord. Now, the word for coming of the Lord is a unique word in the Bible. It's the word parousia. Usia is the word for being or presence. Para is the word for alongside. So this parousia is his coming presence alongside of us. It's a presence that comes because he comes. And so it's used in the translation of simply the word coming. Because when he comes, he comes in the fullness of his presence and he comes alongside of us to deliver us. So I went through the scripture to find every reference where parousia is used with regard to the coming of Messiah. Let me just read these to you. I want to remind you not only of what Yeshua has done for us in the past, but what he's promised to do for us in the future. That's what we need to remind our hearts of so we're not frustrated with people or frustrated by circumstances so that we're patient with individuals, patient in our circumstances. So this is what we find in Matthew chapter 24. Of course, that's the Olivet Discourse. He said, Yeshua says, As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 1 Corinthians 15, so also when Messiah shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Messiah, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Messiah. 1 Thessalonians, for what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our God, Yeshua, at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. 1 Thessalonians 3, so that he may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 2 Thessalonians, Now concerning the coming of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah and our being gathered together to him, 2 Thessalonians, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Yeshua will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. James makes reference to it here in chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. 2 Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Peter goes on to say, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And lastly, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So what is the Bible telling us? Is Yeshua coming again? I mean, is that it? Yes. Maybe, I guess. Yes, right? He's coming. 
This is what our hearts need to hear. They don't need to hear Yeshua is coming one day. Maybe my lifetime, it might not be. No, we're to say the Lord is coming. Why am I so disturbed by what this person has just said to me? Why am I so disturbed by how this person acted toward me? Why am I so disturbed by the circumstances that I'm facing in my life? Why am I so fearful of this, that, or the other? I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care of business. I'm not saying be flippant about life. But I am saying if we're going to be, as Yaakov challenged us to be, a patient people, a long-suffering people, a steadfast people who will stay the line, stay the course without giving up an inch, it better be because we remember Yeshua has given his life for us and has seen the glories of the results of that since he's seated at the majesty of the throne on high, according to the writer of Hebrews. And it ought to be because we know he's coming again and what we are experiencing now will someday come to an end. It will come to an end, dearly beloved. It will come to an end. We're in a fallen world. We said we're in our father's world, but it happens to be a fallen world at this time. We're going to suffer. We're going to struggle. We're going to be challenged. This ought not to take us by surprise. Peter says, don't be uh, unnerved by the fiery trial you find yourself in. We're in a fallen world. It will come. And if it hasn't come, it will come. But Messiah is with us every step of the word way. The prophets have provided us an example for us to look back toward. Yeshua has given us an example and more than just an example, but at least an example for us to look back to in terms of his suffering and the promise that he's coming again. Now, one last analogy. I had, uh, while, while, you know, the cat's away, the mice will play, Mary Lou was away, so I was able to take out the, the CD, the, rever- the Reverend, you know. How many of you saw that, by the way? Any of you see it? Incredible movie, right? Amazing movie. And the images of the forest and stuff in Canada is just breathtaking. It's beautiful on so many levels. Bloody, it's very bloody. If you're not a bloody type person, not a movie for you to see. But in terms of the storyline and in terms of the cinematography and the acting, holy crow, it's just, uh, just amazing on so many fronts. My own personal evaluation, of course. And of course, I'm not a film critic, so what do I know? But all I can tell you is while I watched this movie... Of course, somebody had come over and told me they saw the movie. And they told me what a great movie it was, you know. Ah, but they said, but one thing, this, this bear attack scene is like, oh, it, is, it, it, it threw me for a loop. I couldn't believe this thing. It's like, how did they do this, you know? And how does he endure this? And it was pretty intense, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a pretty intense scene. So that when I'm watching it, and I saw that he was in the woods and there were some bears. I said, oh, this must be the scene. And so when it came, it was like, how do they do that? But it wasn't so disturbing for me. Of course, I'm at home too. But I mean, it wasn't like in the big screen. But I think part of the reason for that was I knew it was coming. You know, I knew the scene was coming. So when I saw that he was in the woods and there were bears, okay, I just held on tight. Yeah, I know, I know the bear scene is coming. So here it comes, right? That's what... The Bible is like. The Bible is telling us the Lord is coming. We know the end already. Now, you might say, 
you know, that, that must have ruined the movie for you. You know, it must have ruined that moment because they told you already. It was like a spoiler alert, you know. You've already seen it. And, you know, it's just, it's just I said, no, I kind of like knowing it was coming, you know. Some of us like the surprise. I kind of like to know what's going to happen, you know, especially if it's something like that. All of us know the Lord is coming. We all know the end already, you know. We've read the end of the book. We haven't seen the middle of it. We haven't seen the whole movie yet. But we know the beginning, the past. We know the end. We're in process of getting there, and we will get there. And many have come through the trials and challenges that we have gone through and worse. And many are going through them even now as we even think about it, talk about it, and reflect on it even now in our world. And that's not to say because of that we can endure, but because of what God brought others through and what he's promised us for the future, we have a great hope. And so as Yaakov says, it's an imperative, by the way, it's a command, be patient, be steadfast, be long-suffering, be macrothumia, be short Do not be short-fused. Be long-fused. Let it take a long time, all time. Be forgiving. Be gracious. Be steadfast. Be courageous. And be trusting for God to get us through. Tell your heart that over and over and over again. And you will find the fruit of the Spirit will emerge. And as you tell your heart that, Make sure you're telling your heart it's because of what Messiah has done and what Messiah promises he will yet do. And because of him, we can trust, we can be courageous, we can be forgiving, and we can be gracious. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us this day. And we pray, Lord, your spirit would not only, be, not only be welcomed here in this place, but be welcomed in our hearts and to fill our hearts fully. We pray, Lord, he would have his way in us in making, bringing to fruition the fruit of the Spirit. And as Yaakov draws our attention toward patience, may that be exhibited and may it be seen And may it be experienced in and through us day by day. Help us, Lord, to look to Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. May he empower us to do this, we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.